welcome back to the Endoscopy News podcast. And also a great thank you to Pendax Medical for supporting this endeavor. Now, I spent a couple of days looking at the presentations and listening to the discussions at the UVG Week 2021. We have endoscopic news on the topic of uh, bariatrics, AI, staging of cancer, endoscopic resections, uh, of course, surveillance and screening, spinal endoscopy, gastric outlet obstruction, duodenal adenomas, cymethicone, bad news on cymethicone, uh, monitoring of eosinophilic esophagitis, and what do we do about recurrent object eaters? Difficult to thought topic. Now, the meeting was kicked off by a session on dedicated to AI, uh, where Chiesare Hassan, Raf Bishops, and Silvio Danese were talking about AI. Chiesare was very enthusiastic, and he thinks that all AI systems are actually very similar. None is better than any other. So that's a relief if you've invested in one of them. He highlighted that the problem with AI is that it flags too many lesions. We get too many false positives. And we almost have to train ourselves as endoscopists to quickly discard the false positive box. These are the boxes that flash up and stay up for a few seconds and then just quickly disappear. In other words, colonoscopies has to adapt. And there's a danger, of course, that we end up just looking at the, those flashing boxes, ignoring everything else that comes up. And he reminded us that the AI has actually been developed just to recognize polyps. Uh, other pathologies, for example, cancers, are not recognized. So if you only look at the AI-generated boxes, and you can miss all sorts of things. Chaser has done a cost-effectiveness analysis, and he claims that AI would reduce the post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer rate by 5%. I think that's very optimistic. I must admit I'm a bit skeptical, and I don't think that figure has been proven in, in general practice, to be honest. Anyway, I hope he's right. Both Raph Bishops and Chesare agree that the future of AI lies in polyp detection at small bowel capsule. In fact, I think it's surprising that AI wasn't first trained in small capsule endoscopy. If you've done any reporting, you know that it's incredibly tedious. So any AI input to reduce the reading time of capsule endoscopy would be very, very welcome. Uh, surprisingly, there hasn't been any publications on this topic. And at the UEG week, there was only one presentation uh, that was um, an evaluation of capsule AI to detect angiectasia, not polyps or anything else, at small bowel capsule endoscopy. There's been some work on AI to assess and score inflammatory bowel disease. Of course, the problem with human assessment is that our inter-observer variability is rather poor. There are research systems which scores the IBD according to the Mayo scoring system. However, they are all in the rather early stages of development and have only been trained on non-equivocal images where everyone agrees that this is active inflammation or this is an active inflammation. And of course, life isn't like that. And of course, in the future, AI systems may do more than simply analyze color images. For example, there was a presentation of a red density system, which basically measures the redness of the colonic mucosa, which of course tally with histological degree of inflammation. 
rough tried a system like that in Leuven where it works and found that the AI system could accurately detect 86% of patients with active colitis. It also recognized 90% of patients with Quescent disease but conversely scored 10% of patients with histological remission as having active colitis. So um, perhaps still more work needs to be done. Oddly enough, none of the presenters were at all optimistic that AI could ever be able to detect flat dysplasia in colitis. Perhaps the only AI system which could stand any chance in, in, in detecting dysplasia is the endocytoscopy-based AI system, which uh, has been evaluated. Basically, this endocytoscope can magnify the mucosa about 500 times. And there is an AI system currently being trained to detect inflammation, so not dysplasia, just inflammation, and then express the results at percentage score. So you get something along the lines of there is a 92% chance that there's active inflammation here. Perhaps this could be further to develop to detect flat dysplasia and colitis. It probably is quite difficult because even with high resolution HE histological slides, it's difficult to make that call. Remember, histopathologists find it very difficult to detect inflammation from dysplasia. They both look very similar. Now, ultimately, of course, AI will undoubtedly also be fed data, clinical data, such as severity of symptoms or blood results or fecal calprotectin levels, etc. And such a fully integrated system would probably improve all sorts of things, prediction of response to particular drugs, need for surgery, drive patient education and improve compliance with medication, etc. Silvio speculated that in the future it may be drug companies that become involved with developing tests to help clinicians select the correct patient for their particular drug. Now, um, there are also a few presentations on the use of AI to recognize malignant CBD strictures during spyglass examinations. As you know, a malignant CBD stricture has a nodular mucosa, abnormal vessels or a more villous lining of the endothelium. And uh, there was a group that presented an AI system to assess CBD stricture and reported pretty good results. The AI system correctly identified 92% of patients uh, uh, as not having a malignant CBD stricture, i.e. benign CBD stricture, there were true negatives, but therefore falsely labeled 8% of patients as having cancer, when in fact they didn't have cancer. These were the false positives. Um, of course, this AI system was again trained on an unequivocal barn door cases in which everyone agreed. Now, personally, I go back and have another look at the images I took of every lesion I have removed to confirm that I made the correct endoscopic diagnosis. I still do that after 30 years of the trade, so to speak, because I believe this is how we become better endoscopists. And of course, I think AI systems should be fed back the same information. In other words, somehow be informed that a particular lesion was a true positive or, or, or a false positive. But of course, there is no feedback built into AI. Now moving on to bariatrics, uh, Jack Devier outlined the common endoscopic strategies that we have to deal with obesity. 
Castry Botox injection, of course, has been abandoned as ineffective, and it didn't even mention gastric balloons, surprisingly. He did mention the disgusting but effective aspiration therapy, where you put a peg tube in and the patient then sucks out whatever they eat. And he also mentioned endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty using the Apollo device, which does induce and maintains weight loss for at least two years. There is little or no four-year data. You may also remember that there was a plastic duodenal sleeve which was attached to the pylorus and then was allowed to extend down the duodenum. Now, unfortunately, the pylorus attachment was rather poor and it could fall off. And it was also linked with a 4% risk of bleeding. So I don't think this is actually on the market anymore. The recent thing on the block has been duodenal RFA using a special kind of balloon device where you basically RFA burn the superficial duodenal mucosa. It has shown improved diabetic control in poorly controlled diabetics, that is. But the weight loss in my mind was rather disappointing at about 3% only at six months. And the effect on NASH was also disappointing. Furthermore, in my mind, the duodenal mucosa will presumably recover, casting some doubt over whether this treatment actually lasts or has to be repeated regularly. It's rather unpleasant, I'm sure, to have your duodenal mucosa RFA'd. So I don't think the patient would come back to have that done regularly. Anyway, Jack mentioned that the way ahead may be to endoscopically bypass the duodenum altogether uh, using a, say, a hot action stent or something, finding a, a, a connection between the stomach and the jejunum and then closing the pylorus endoscopically so all the food bypasses the duodenum and, and proximal jejunum altogether. Now, this will induce weight loss, but of course may lead to bacterial overgrowth in the stagnant loop of duodenum. You may actually have inadverted uh, problems associated with it. Now, next we move on to rectal cancer. Uh, of course, the management of rectal cancer has become rather complex. As you know, T1, T2 and T3 rectal cancer without lymphadenopathy can often be treated non-surgically with chemo-radiotherapy. And rectal preservation is therefore possible in about 50% of patients, according to several big trials now, the CARTS trial, the PRODIGY23 trial, and the RAPIDO trial. Now, the CARTS study reported that 8% of patients who initially seems to have a complete response to their chemo-rad then develop a local recurrence. The GRECR2 study gave more information and reported that if a residual cancer was smaller than 2 centimeters, 60% of transanal resections were curative. But this fell to only 35% of residual cancers if they were larger than 2 centimeters. Local recurrences, which are usually T2 disease, by the way, usually develop within 12 months. Only one third of these patients required a proctectomy, and most could be cured with a transanal resection. Now, of course, a laparoscopic uh, total 
mesorectal excision or a transanal resection for that matter after radiotherapy is quite an undertaking and linked with poor healing and, and rather poor outcomes. You can get a, like a septic mesenteric enteritis. And for this reason, patients with a local recurrence is a bit of a problem. I know that in Leeds, elderly patients who are not candidates for surgery are offered a brachytherapy boost to their residual disease. Initially, a common pitfall is to repeat the MRI imaging too soon after radiotherapy. It takes a while for the cancers to respond to the radiotherapy. So nowadays, MRI is delayed by three or four months after the adjuvant chemorad rather than performed six weeks after the chemorad as was formerly the case. Furthermore, small nodes are nowadays regarded as probably negative and are simply watched rather than rushing in with surgery. Now, Regina Beetz-Tan, radiologist from the Netherlands, told us that uh, EUS is the best modality for uh, staging T1 disease although it does tend to overstage T, T2 and T3 cancers are being more advanced than they really are. But excluding T1 disease, modern MRI scanners are brilliant at T-staging rectal cancers, better than EUS, and are better at assessing nodal disease. And something called diffusion MRI, I don't really know what this is, but it's apparently particularly good at detecting a local recurrence after a local excision and up to 90% accurate at detecting residual cancer, even if that cancer is hiding deep within the wall of the rectum. Now, of course, sigmoidoscopy and biopsies is the best modality to detect recurrent mucosal disease. And for that reason, a combination of MRI and flexisig is probably best way ahead. Now, paradoxically, if you take biopsies at this flexisig, just the simple taking of biopsies blurs the subsequent MRI images. And for this reason, MRI should now be done before the sigmoidoscopy. Now moving on to talking about endoscopic resection of rectal cancer, Leon Moons, a gastroenterologist from Utrecht, talked about full thickness resection of rectal cancer using the Ovesco clip device. Now, the problem with this full thickness resection device is that the target lesion can't be any larger than 15-20 millimeters, of course, and most early colorectal cancers are larger than this. Even when the device is used in these highly selected, particularly small cancers, the complete endoscopic clearance rate, the R0 resection rate, if you like, ranges between 60 to 80% in the four main studies looking at this. Because nothing larger than two centimeters can be resected by the full thickness resection device, I guess an alternative would be that you carry out a piecemeal EMR of the benign part of the lesion and then focus your full thickness resection device on the malignant portion with that destroyed or severely disrupted crypt pattern. Now, the risk of unexpected lymph node metastases after such an endoscopic resection, this is after the pathologist has reported that there's no adverse histological features. About two, three percent of patients will develop lymph node metastases afterwards. 
But Leon reminded us that even after transanal surgery will kill about 1-2% to of patients and in about 4% of patients there will be a local recurrence. So the gold standard might be a bit less golden. Uh, and for this reason he argued that a 2-3% to risk of the patient developing enlarging mesorectal nodes after a curative endoscopic resection was justifiable. There was a presentation by Matthew Pioche from Lyon on a multi-center study on ESD 126 small but suspicious looking lesions no larger than 15 millimeters this time so small and uh, this multi-center study reported that in about 50% of cases the removal turned out to be curative the other half went up into surgery of course Leon presented an alternative to standard ESD which he then called EID endoscopic intermuscular dissection apparently there's a clear plane between the circular colonic muscle and the longitudinal muscle layer and it's possible to dissect kind of in the middle of the muscle propria layer in this way and uh, Leon described that his center had done some 67 cases now <laughs> he didn't provide any data on the size of lesions he attacked with this method or the complication rates and simply said that in 80% of non-lifting cases this muscle propria uh, layer dissection approach turned out to be good and uh, that in about half the cases the resection was regarded as curative. Basically ESDing or EIDing a non-lifting suspicious looking lesion may be curative in about half the cases. Now, having said that, personally, I think that a 12-month follow-up is a little too early to declare success. I would be more comfortable after three years uh, in which the patient has not de developed any lymph node metastases or liver metastases for that matter. Anyway, another uh, issue discussed in this session on rectal cancer was the location of the rectal cancer. It matters. You see, the mesorectal plane is particularly thin in the anterior rectum. This is where the urethra is sitting and, and the prostate in the man, of course. And therefore, a failed attempt at local excision of a lesion in the anterior rectum will make a subsequent total mesorectal excision very difficult. And it actually may not be possible to get a complete surgical resection. Uh, similarly, a local resection of a cancer at the very low anal margin can also make a subsequent total mesorectal excision very difficult. Finally, Thomas Rush asked a very probing question of what we should regard as a clear margin after an endoscopic resection. And we all know, don't we, that a pathologist would say one millimeter clearance. And I was surprised actually that the surgeon he asked this question of wouldn't come down on a specific value. Moving to the other end of the GI tract, gastric cancer and gastric ESD. I'm glad to announce that the Japanese have dropped a rather snobbish attitude to what's called counter-traction. That is using dental floss or rubber bands or clips or loops or something to basically 
pull the lesion in one direction while you dissect in another. Of course, the surgeons call this triangulation and it's the basics of surgery. You pull the lesion in one way and you dissect the other. It makes ESD or surgery for that matter quicker and safer, uh, unless you pull too hard, I guess. Professor Inui mentioned ESSD, endoscopic subserosal dissection. That's different from EID, when you dissect between the circular and longitudinal plane. With ESSD, you dissect through the muscle propria layer, but you stopped at the serosa. And they showed a, a video of ESSD. And to my horror, the serosa is very, very, very thin. You can see through it. I don't really see the point of it. I think you might as well have perforated. That little thin layer is not going to do anything. So I don't quite see the, the point of ESSD, subserosal dissection. Helmut Messmann from Augsburg in Germany reminded us of the Japanese endoscopic resection criteria, which basically says that intestinal type early gastric cancers larger than three centimeters should be referred for surgery, as should all diffuse type cancers, regardless of the size. However, uh, if you're in a therapeutic endoscopy, you know that this started to shift about 10 years ago uh, with a modified criteria. And nowadays, diffuse type uh, gastric cancer up to about two centimeters in size may be offered an endoscopic resection. The worry with diffuse type cancer, of course, is that these, these little, little mucinous signet ring cells spread longitudinally along the ward of the stomach. And what initially seems to be two centimeter cancer might actually be the tip of the iceberg. Now, Helmut also reminded us about gastric ESD data from a German registry, which showed that a single high volume center seemed to have the best outcome. But I would suggest that there isn't much difference between what the study regarded as a low volume center, which had an average of 115 gastric EADs, and a middle volume center, which had done about 130 ESDs. There's only 15 ESDs between the two. And indeed, the outcomes were very similar and basically reported a complete early gastric cancer clearance of between 68 to 77% of cases, a complication rate of between 11 to 13%, and a local recurrence rate of 2 to 4%. Now, the obvious question to follow was, what is the minimum annual case volume which you need to set yourself up as a gastric ESD center? And it was suggested that uh, 20 gastric ESDs was correct, or 100 ESDs if you incorporate the whole of the GI tract. That seemed to be the consensus. Moving on from uh, gastric uh, cancer to surveillance and screening throughout the GI tract. Now, Pierre Depresse discussed the topic of esophageal uh, squamous cell carcinoma, which, as you all know, is terrible disease. By the time you have submucosal invasion, the five-year survival drops to 50-60% only. However, if you can catch the disease at the intramucosal stage before it starts invading the submucosa, then the disease will have spread to regional lymph nodes in only something like one in 50 cases. 
Fortunately, with the reduction of smoking, the number of cases in the West is falling. But uh, we should still have a look at the squamous mucosa. And if we see any, any mucosal irregularity, it may be a slightly red color change, almost like a patch of Barrett's in the middle of a squamous mucosa, or what looks like candida in the middle of the esophagus, which should be suspicious that we might be looking at uh, squamous dysplasia. Uh, in addition, uh, uh, Professor Oyama from Nagano in Japan reminded us um, that we shouldn't just push past the pharynx, but stop and have a careful look at the pharynx before we intubate the, into the esophagus, particularly in high-risk groups, such as, in my mind, patients on variceal banding programs, which are often smokers. And of course, other high-risk cases would include patients with a previous head or neck squamous cell cancer, patients with achalasia, or patients with previous caustic esophageal injuries. Patients with tylosis, there's not many of them around, but of course they have a a high risk of developing esophageal squamous cell cancer. Patients with um, light and plainness of the esophagus is another high risk group. And also, and I wasn't aware of this, patients who have previously undergone radiotherapy for breast cancer. Now, then followed a discussion about the advantages and disadvantages of assessing the squamous esophagus with narrowband imaging versus Lugos iodine. <laughs> By the way, the first time I used Lugos iodine, I phoned the pharmacy up asking them what percentage it was. And they just laughed at me, said, it's Lugos iodine. But I still didn't get it. What do you mean? What percentage of iodine is in there? And then they took pity on me and said, Dr. Rembaken, Lugos iodine is always, by definition, a 5% solution. <laughs> of course, we don't need 5% dilution, it's a bit too strong. So most will now dilute the leucocytine to half strength, to about 2 to 3%, which is enough. Now, the problem, of course, with leucocytine is that it's painful. Even if you spill it on your skin, it's, it stinks a bit. And uh, in the esophagus, it stinks even more, of course, even if you spray uh, sodium thiosulfate afterwards to kind of um, counteract it. Now, of course, Lugos is actually more powerful in detecting esophageal low-grade dysplasia than narrowband imaging, but is no better than NBI in detecting high-grade dysplasia. So nowadays, I always extubate. So once I'm on the way out for the stomach, I then switch to NBI and then carefully look at the squamous esophageal mucosa under NBI routinely. And what you should look for is a slightly darker patches, basically. And of course, you see inlet patches easier too. Now, Mario Denis Ribeiro from Porto in Portugal reminded us that a careful examination of the stomach to look for intestinal metaplasia on narrowband imaging is as good as taking biopsies in detecting patients with a pan-gastric intestinal metaplasia, who then require surveillance. However, I personally find it quite difficult to reliably diagnose intestinal metaplasia endoscopically, because it doesn't always appear as white spots on, on NBI. And 
actually, to be completely reliable and accurate in detecting interstellar metaplasia, you need to assess the mucosa with not just NBI, but with magnification underwater to look for what's called the light blue crest sign. If you Google it, you can see great images of what that actually looks like. You know, filling the stomach up with water, etc., is, is quite a lot of work. Now, if I'm going to declare that a particular patient does not warrant entry onto a gastric surveillance program because the patient doesn't have interstinal metaplasia or total gastric atrophy, then personally, I would like to have histological confirmation to kind of support me. Otherwise, I could end up in trouble when the patient develops a gastric cancer in 10 years' time. That patient might then come back to me and say, Dr. Rembagen, you should have entered me into a surveillance program. And if I then just say, well, you know, it didn't look like you had interstinal metaplasia, it's actually easier to defend your action if you can then point to the histological slides and say, look, there was no interstinal metaplasia. Anyway, going on to the colon, Francis Balaguer from Barcelona talked about surveillance in the colon. Of course, patients with Lynch syndrome have a particularly appalling risk of developing colorectal cancer and a particularly accelerated risk. It's estimated that the interval between adenoma to cancer can be as quick as three years. And furthermore, the risk of colonic cancer probably start to go up about 10 years earlier than in patients with sporadic cancer, particularly in patients with uh, mutation in the MLH1 or the MSH2 gene. If the evidence for a benefit of surveillance is very shaky, then you'll find that the guideline committees will start to recommend surveillance in specialist centers with specialist high quality endoscopes and being done very, very often, maybe every year or every two years. And for this reason, I'm not surprised that the guidelines recommend very intensive surveillance every two years in specialist centers by high quality examination in Lynch syndrome. The evidence for colorectal surveillance in Lynch syndrome is shaky. There's no strong evidence that it actually benefits patients. Anyway, FFP and Pussyegger syndrome were covered by pediatricians from St. Mark's, Dr. Haya and Dr. Marisa Pelias Urquiza from Barcelona. They reminded us that the first surveillance gastroscopy in a patient with FFP should start at age 25, according to guidelines. And then, more controversially, patients with Pussyegger syndrome are recommended to start gastroscopy, capsule endoscopy, and colonoscopy with the removal of um, small bowel polyps larger than 15 millimeters from the age of eight. These are still little kids and they need to undergo these invasive procedures every three years. Poor kids. And this is not to reduce the risk of cancer. No, no, no. This is to reduce the risk of intersusception. Poor kids, if I was a child, I would probably say no to this and instead face the risk of an interception. How do you even get a kid to swallow those massive capsules? I don't know. Indeed, there's no evidence at all that removing the hamatomatous polyps that patients with post-Jager syndrome get will actually do anything for their cancer risk. Now, Dr. Maria Pelisor-Quiza then mentioned the 
2020 International Gastric Cancer Linkage Consortium Guideline, say that if you're drunk, uh, for patients with hereditary diffuse type gastric cancer. This, this is formerly known as the Cambridge Protocol. Now, in Barcelona, they have been following these guidelines for a few years and uh, offering annual surveillance taking no less than 30 minutes per examination and including 30 random gastric biopsies in patients with hereditary diffuse type gastric cancer. These are patients who declined surgery, by the way, because of course, ideally, these patients should undergo a total gastrectomy, sometimes between the age of 20 or 30. The guidelines state that patients who prefer surveillance over surgery should be informed that uh, gastroscopy surveillance could delay identification and treatment for any future gastric cancer. I would actually go one step further and tell the patients that there is absolutely no evidence at all that endoscopic surveillance saves lives. There was then an update on bowel cancer screening, colorectal cancer screening, that is in Europe, by my friend Jaroslav Regola from Poland. He drew my attention to a recent publication by Cardoso et al, which gave us an update on what has been happening to the colorectal cancer mortality rate before and after the introduction of screening throughout Europe. Reassuringly, the risk of dying from bowel cancer appears to be slowly falling in almost all our countries. However, I was surprised to see that the death rate was falling at the same rate before the introduction of bowel cancer screening in our countries. And furthermore, the onset of screening doesn't seem to have accelerated the reduction in mortality. The authors didn't comment on this very surprising finding. I think you should look up the paper yourself and have a look at those graphs. It's really puzzling. Moving on, Rebecca Fitzgerald, professor at Cambridge, reminded us about her prospective randomized trial of the cytosponge, sponge, which was published last year in Lancet, uh, which basically highlighted that 24% of patients randomized to have the cytosponge actually accepted the cytosponge as a very selected number of patients. But anyway, 13% of the patient who accepted to undergo the cytosponge tested positive for Barrett's and were offered a follow-up gastroscopy and in 59% of these did indeed have Barrett's. Rebecca argued that there was no need to wait for a necessarily huge study which would have to be include some 100,000 people recruited over a 10-year period to confirm that the cytosponge actually saves lives. I guess this highlights how rare death from esophageal Barrett's cancer actually is. After all, most patients with Barrett's die from heart disease. That it would need such a huge, long study to confirm any benefit. I must admit that I wouldn't like to see 100,000 patients being offered endoscopy. Uh, most would not agree that we do too many endoscopies in the first place, and we should avoid adding to the burden. The cost, the resource implications, and the CO2 impact of endoscopy is simply too great already. We should do less of it. Anyway, I was surprised to hear that the total cost of the cytosponge sponge and its associated trefoil assay, uh, which Rebecca has patented, by the way, is actually half the cost of a gastroscopy, therefore quite expensive. 
Rebecca has been a director of the company Cited, which is behind the detection technology, and I guess has little interest in doing anything about reducing the company's profit margins. I don't think there's any hope that the technology will actually get any cheaper. Of course, go directly now to a population level screening program for Barrett's, which of course would make the cited directors and shareholders very rich indeed. But I worry that we run the risk of bankrupting the NHS. And for this reason, I would say, yes, we do need a large prospective study to make everyone aware of the huge cost that would be associated with a population level screening program for Barrett's. Wouldn't it be smarter if we use this sort of technology not to detect patients with Barrett's out in the community, but to monitor patients with known Barrett's and then reserve endoscopy for patients with cytosponge de detected dysplasia. Mind you, I'm not entirely sure that Professor Fitzgerald's cytosponge trifold factor 3 test can actually be used to differentiate between non-dysplastic and dysplastic parrots, but there must be other technologies out there that can do that. Now moving on to the small bowel and spiral endoscopy, we had an update of a multicenter study presented by Torsten Benia from Düsseldorf, who incidentally has received sponsorship from Olympus, who of course makes their spiral endoscope. As you may know, there's been some question marks over the safety of the motorized spiral endoscope. In this multicenter study, there were 298 patients. The study reported that there were serious adverse events in 2.3% of procedures. That included one perforation, two bleeds, one deep esophageal laceration, and one case when the spiral endoscope seemed to have fallen apart, possibly because the wrong mouth guard was used. The overall adverse event rate was close to 10%, also included mucosal lacerations and abdominal pain after the procedure. Total endoscopy was achieved in about 50% of cases when this was attempted. 80% of patients underwent the procedure under full general anesthesia with intubation. The group that weren't fully intubated had it under propofol sedation. There was then a session on a gastric outlet obstruction and uh, a three-center non-randomized study comparing duodenal uh, stenting versus US-guided gastroenterostomy in patients with a malignant gastric outlet obstruction. There was no difference, of course, in, in the initial success rate or the complication rates or indeed the overall survival. Why would there be? But stent dysfunction was more of an issue with the duodenal stents than the EUS-guided um, gastro-jejunostomy stents. The uh, difference was 4% stent dysfunction rate in the EUS-guided stent versus 23% stent occlusion in the ordinary pyloric slash duodenal stents, which came quite quickly, kind of two, three months later than the duodenal stents started to play up. Surprising, there's no mention or the procedure terms, uh, or the number of reinterventions in the two groups. And you should know, by the way, that patients with a large amount of ascites either had to have their ascites first drained, or were not offered EUS-guided gastroenterostomy in the first place. 
and I understand that a prospective study comparing surgical stenting versus EUS-guided gastroenterostomy is currently in planning. Moving on to Judenal adenomas, tiger country in other words, Robert Hunenberg presented a study of 193 patients who had biopsies taken from their judenal papilla. They didn't have any problems, by the way, taking biopsies from the judenal papilla. There weren't any cases of pancreatitis, which is incidentally has been reported in something like 2% of patients. Anyway, in 40%, sampling the normal looking judenal papilla, a histology reported that actually there is low grade dysplasia here. Gosh, then what then what do you do? Because an ampelectomy is dangerous. And in uh, Robert Hunenberg's own theory, they had 23 cases who then proceeded to an ampelectomy. 30% of these uh, developed late bleeding and there was a 43% risk of pancreatitis. That's a exceedingly high risk uh, and the risk of acute pancreatitis might have been this high because I understand that not every patient had a pancreatic stent placed after the procedure. Unfortunately the local recurrence rate after an ampelectomy can be as high as 50% and it was, was speculated by the way in the interesting discussion at the end of this studio session that perhaps the local recurrence doesn't actually come from a nearby mucosa but actually arises from within the pancreatic duct, the, the ampulla within the duct. And that raises the possibility that a papillectomy might only provide half the treatment. The other half is to try to deal with the dysplasia which has started to crawl into the pancreatic duct. Or maybe it even started inside the pancreatic duct. We don't really know. But how do you do that? Now, of course, aspirin is protective against the duodenal cancer and it's half the risk of developing a polarite tumors in a study presented by Piera Sacari from Milan. Interestingly, a previous history of cholecystectomy appeared to double the risk of developing a polarite tumor in the future. Dr. Tagaziva from Sapporo presented data on cold snaring of duodenal polyps smaller than 10 millimeters. He reported on 394 duodenal polyps which were cold snared and reported a 4% only risk of local recurrence and a 1% risk of late bleeding. None required transfusion and I understand that in most cases even after cold snare they placed a clip. There were no perforations of course. And then finally, Dr. Audrey Folkestad from Norway presented data on 29 mainly small duodenal NETs, neuroendocrine tumors, which incidentally seem to get more common or perhaps more often recognized. Anyway, out of these 29 NETs, three turn out to be functional secreting gastrin. Half the lesions in the 11 to 20 millimeter range had developed metastases. And this increased further to 60% of patients with lesions larger than two centimeters, but again, there weren't many of them. Uh, and of course, the ENETS guideline does advise against endoscopic resection for duodenal NETs larger than 10 millimeters, for good reason, it seems. Now, finally, there was a presentation by ESG ENA on cymethicone, and they basically reminded us that we shouldn't 
add cymethicone to the water jet channels because you can't brush them. So you can't get rid of the little layer of cymethicone which kind of accumulates there, which then becomes fertile development grounds for biofilms. And biofilms, as you know, are bad because uh, they're almost impossible to clear out unless you actually scrub them and of course you can't scrub a jet channel we simply have to get used to flushing bubbles away in the old-fashioned way by filling up a syringe with uh, water and some ethicone and then flush down the biopsy channel which of course can be scrubbed with a brush afterwards on the topic of eosinophilic esophagitis there was an interesting danish study presented by martin passion which showed that elevated serum levels of something called Pro-C3, which is a marker for type 3 collagen deposition, and Pro-C6, a marker for type 4 collagen deposition, can help in identifying patients at risk of progressive fibrosis in EOE. And we could do with better markers than patients who are at risk of developing uh, strictures in, in EOE. We don't have any, we kind of go on symptomatology, don't we? And then finally, a topic close to my heart, and that's that of recurrent object eaters, or swallowers, should I say, where Alexander Mining and Jack Devia discussed this intractable problem. The question arose, when, if ever, should we stop offering endoscopy with these patients? Alexander Mining presented a very sad case of a patient who to date had undergone 34 endoscopies to retrieve swallowed objects. Her, the current favorite were apparently was spoons. This poor patient had undergone psychiatric admissions and interventions. She was living in some sort of a sheltered accommodation, but she kept repeatedly swallowing foreign, foreign bodies. Nothing seemed to help. By the way, on the topic of retrieving objects, we should use those large floppy hoods which we can attach to the end of our gastroscope and then use to cover any sharp objects as we retrieve them because otherwise we can end up with horrendous lacerations of the esophagus. Anyway, thanks for listening. That concludes my review of the UEG week 2021. And also a warm thank you to Pendax Medical for supporting this endeavor. Next time, we will be talking about green endoscopy, if there is such a thing. Uh, see you then. Bye.